Podcastle 292 Giant episode For December, well let's say 27th, 2013 Scry by Anne Ivy Rated R Contains some violence and sex Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. I hope you all are enjoying the holidays, feeling stuffed from turkey or goose or orange chicken. Today we're going to stuff your brain with an epic tale of science fantasy. We're very proud to present Scry by Anne Ivy, originally published at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. I'm so excited to share this story with you today. It's a story I wanted to run way back during our Science Fantasy Month because it's pretty much everything I want out of Science Fantasy. That said, the naming convention in this story takes a little bit of getting used to because the surname, which is the first name, like in China, is taken by the woman from her father and then her husband. So due to that and the cosmic sprawling nature of this story, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before and give you a brief introduction to our characters. Er Isri Est, generally called Est, is our story's protagonist, the finest scryer on the planet, and the wife, or former wife, of Er Ethloon. He's the head of a royal house and protector of the fugitive prince Ben Tur Ebron. Benter Ebron is being hunted down by Karnan Day. Karnan Nameless Day, an alien who's bent on revolution and overthrowing the prince and his supporters. Got it? Well, don't freak out if you don't. I know it's a lot to take in, and I'll post this on the site too, but mainly, I just wanted to give you a heads up. I think if you'll stick with it, you'll really, really be happy you did. This week's story was written by Anne Ivey, which is an actual pseudonym for twin sisters who write fiction together. One is a medical doctor, the other is an attorney. Together, they fight kaiju and write short stories together. Our reader this week is one of our favorites, the extremely talented Elizabeth Green Musselman of Darker Matter Knits. Elizabeth has read many a story here for us, including ML in Hanover's Hurt Me and Michelle Baker's Throwing Stones. We'll put a link to Darker Matter Knits in our show notes, where you can check out her very fetching knitting patterns and designs. So, set your blasters to stun, get ready to make the jump to hyperspace, and enjoy the story. Scry by Anne Ivy. By dawn, the house of Air Ethloon had fallen. Dead soldiers and laser cauterized pieces of soldiers littered the stairs and bridges into the palace. The sun rose slowly over the spires, flushing the sky pink and pale blue, gleaming off broken glass, bringing color to the gore. Anubises, wading into the midst of the detritus, carried the bodies away. The dead, victorious and defeated alike, all went to the crematorium together. The metal gates into the house hung warped and melted on their hinges. The inside echoed, empty, threatening. The first to set foot on the foyer's metal floor had been electrocuted. Aereth Loon and his liege, the fugitive prince Ben Tur Ibrin, were long gone. 
Some of Karn and Nameless Day's followers hoped their quarry, Loon and Ebron, was hiding somewhere in the house, sure to be flushed out. Most knew better. Loon's soldiers had fought with the desperate furor of those who knew themselves dead. They'd been fighting to buy their master's time to escape, not to save their own lives. They'd succeeded, and their ranks, brave, loyal, and dead, lay an unflinching testament to the cost of Loon's contingency plan. Air Isriest sat on a metal chair in a metal closet, barely big enough to fit her and the chair. She held the key cards to her house in her hands, running them through her fingers idly. Their transparent and gently glowing edges provided the only light. Beneath her chair, she'd stashed the last gift her husband, Air Ethlun, had ever given her, a vial of poison. She knew that no one would find this closet. She had scried it. She could stay here until she died. The scent of her rotting corpse would be the finger that beckoned the partisans of Karnan Day, who would overrun her house to her hiding place. She had seen that this place was safe. She had not seen that she would be abandoned here in the end. Perhaps she should have looked deeper. She had feared scrying her husband's defeat, capture, or death. Scrying was a dangerous art. Seeing a future would make it happen. In many cases, it was better not to look. Long ago, she had seen the acid that would burn her face and change her life. The acid sent Loon from her bed, caused him to father his heirs on concubines. Heir Isriest was an aristo from an ancient and honorable family. She did not flinch from fate. She could have run and had the acid find her out in fear. The burn would have happened anyway, as the result of her attempt to evade it. Instead, she made the best of things. Acid and fire were the best tools for scrying, better than water and silver, better than blood and wood. She became the greatest scryer of her generation. She could give Loon that, even if he would be robbed of her beauty. She could give herself that, a sure antidote to the pity of others. When the acid found her, it found her brave. But she always wondered in her secret heart whether it would have spilled at all if she had not spent so many years braced for its burn. After that, she had focused her scrying on others. She used it for Loon. She brought him great power. He never divorced her, never considered it. He valued her as a wife, her brilliance, her power, her insight, her peerless family, long after he ceased to value her as a woman, repelled by the scars. She had hidden Loon's prince from Karnan Day's strange black scrying for three years. When at last he was discovered, she had misdirected Day's nameless powers for long enough to secure an escape. Then came the false identity cards with all their faces. Loon's face, the prince's face, the concubine's faces, Loon's son's faces, the bodyguards, even his valets. Loon, her eth whom she had loved so fiercely once, told her that he'd left her card with her scrying things, packed away in this hidden room. She had gone to find it, and found the vial instead. 
She had never imagined that Loon lacked the courage, lacked the respect, to tell her the truth. She had never imagined that she, the greatest scryer of her generation, could be lied to and tricked by her own husband. It was so common, so despicable. Worse, he could not have lied to her if she had not lied to herself. It should have been obvious. No false name on an identity card could hide her scars, the infamous scars of Air Ethlun's reclusive and witch-like wife. Security would have arrested her on sight, no matter what her identity card said. Consciously or not, he had not wanted to save her. He had not wanted to see her scarred face, carefully schooled to hide any traces of jealousy beside his beautiful concubine, Jane Lynn Ells. Loon had even t less tolerance for guilt than he did for ugliness. He didn't want her spilling his secrets at the last either. Loon knew she was highborn, Aristo by blood and breeding, to her bones. To be tortured to death by Carnan Day, to scream and spurt and squeal her secrets at the end, was beneath her. Suicide was dignified by comparison. Loon trusted her to clean up this last mess for him, like so much detritus burdening his flight, even though the mess was herself. She was not detritus. She would not passively hand herself over to the Anubises, even if she could not save herself, she could avenge herself. The greatest danger a scryer faced was to scry her own death. It was the one utterly forbidden vision. Est had killed Day's lone scryer by tricking her into seeing herself toppled dead from her scrying chair. Now that Est knew she herself was certain to die, by her own hand, or by Day's, she could skim closer to that risk. She had no acid and no knife, but she had a little light from the key cards. She bit her tongue hard and spat blood into her hand. Within it, she saw, not for the first time, that Karnan Nameless Day was not a human man. He was Nininki, alien. Like all Nininki, a lie would cost him his life. Having promised to kill all who sheltered the prince, he would never spare her life. She saw that it was too late to escape him. She also saw that she would not die in this closet. By mid-morning, the technicians had disarmed the worst of the traps in the central part of the palace, the foyer and the main hall. Their troops had filled it, and the head technician was briefing Karnan Day on the traps that awaited them in the rest of the house. In the midst of all the chaos, Karnan Day stilled and turned his head. He held up a hand to quiet the technician. Silence spread outward through the people in the hall. Est emerged from a door hidden in the wall. Both her hands showed, but one of them was full of key cards. She walked slowly and purposefully toward Karnan Day. A gesture from Day made the security hang back. When she reached Day, she knelt, spreading the key cards on the ground before her. Then she looked up and let her hood fall back. In the surrounding company, a gasp sounded and was stifled. Est's shaven head marked her as an aristo, and the scars disfiguring the right side of her face 
left no doubt as to her identity. These people who gawped at her had never dreamed of seeing her at all, let alone seeing her kneel on the floor. All was silent, and then she spoke. Carnan Day, I know that you never lie, she said, her voice clear and strong. And you have said that you will kill all who shelter and aid Ben Tur Ibrin. At the request of my husband, I have sheltered and aided Prince Ibrin. I know that by your word, my life is forfeit. My husband has broken his word to me. He has fled with Ibrin. He left me here, knowing that you would break in and kill me. I do not ask that you spare my life. My death sentence has already been issued. Because you keep your word, it is final. You have not said when it should be carried out, however. I ask only that you delay my death. As long as I remain alive, I will serve and aid however you desire, save that I will not harm my family, by which I do not mean my husband, but the family of my birth, my parents and my siblings, cousins, nephews, and nieces. In all other respects, I will do whatever you will. Further, here are the keys to my house. They will open all the doors without harm to you or your servants." Karnan was silent, considering. Everyone else simply stared. People had whispered about her for years. Much had been made of her scars, how horrible and monstrous they were, beyond the can of medics to fix. They distracted the eye, shiny runnels spreading down the front and right side of her face. Aside from the scars, she was not bad-looking. In her thirties, tall, slender. Aerith Loon was a connoisseur of women, and he'd married her for more than her family connections. She knew that Karnan Day would know her offer was genuine. Nininki always knew lies when they heard them. They were jealous of humans' ability to lie, and Karnan Nameless Day would have her screaming on the floor if she were telling one. Knowing she was truthful did not mean Day would accept her offer, though. The safer move would be to kill her straight off. Your family members are numerous and powerful, Karnan Day said. Can you bring them to my side? There was a pause. No, she said at last. Not if you intend to replace the Aristos as rulers of the world. I can help you accomplish that goal. My family's political standing means nothing to me. But I cannot persuade them to change sides. Day paused, contemplative. Est's value as an ally was compromised by her inability to recruit and unwillingness to harm her family. Your offer stands no matter how short a time I let you live, he asked at last. While I live, I am your servant, she said. Then change into drudge's gray and scrub the blood off the stairs in front of your home. There was a beat of complete silence. I appreciate the gift of your keys, Day said, and his face was almost gentle. If you wish to rescind your offer now, I will kill you swiftly and painlessly. No, she said, rising. I know where to find Drudge's Grace. Partisans and supplicants who approached Loon's home that day were sometimes shocked 
sometimes horrified and often awed to see Air Isri Est, the erstwhile lady of the house, scrubbing the blood of her husband's soldiers off the stairs. A defeat of sorts. Carnan Day had taken the house, but lost his quarry, turned to a display of power. Est ignored their reactions. It took her a long time to finish her task. A lot of blood had washed over the white stairs, and she was not practiced in handling a scrub brush. Still, she attacked the job with perfectionist determination. Drudge's greys had no hoods, but she did not deign to show any shame at having her scars stared at by so many. As the light slanted from the west and dimmed to golden, the stairs gleamed. She gave herself this. She got them as clean as they had been when she had ruled the house the day before. Finally, she set the brush down into the pail, her slender arms quivering with exhaustion. She felt eyes on her, but she did not return the gazes. Even in Drudge's gray, crouched on the stairs, she had dignity. She turned and realized that Carnan Day was there. All day he had conducted business without pause, apparently unmindful of his new Aristo Drudge. Yet now he arrived just as she finished her task. He looked down at her with eyes blacker than human pupils. Whites showed around his irises, but she knew the whites were just for show, not real sclera like humans possessed. She did not rise, but bowed her head, the correct manner of a drudge toward an aristo. It was a strangely easy gesture for her to make. Carnan Day wore his hair barbarously long like a prisoner rather than shaved like an aristo. He had not been born of any aristo house, if indeed he had been born at all. As an Ininki, even his corporeality was a mere technicality. But meeting him in the flesh, even if it only looked like flesh, she thought there had never been a more natural aristo than Carnan Day. It was the stage of the afternoon when shadows lay dark on the earth, but the sky was still full of light, selectively illuminating open patches in gold. One beam hit the black-clad Carnan Day, turning his gold hair to a coronet finer than any owned by Ben Tour Ebron. If I kill you now, he said, his voice soft, I will have given you no less than what you asked for. She said nothing, keeping her eyes still cast downward. Servants did not answer back when their masters made statements. She was Aristo enough, still, to know how to play her role. Do you disagree? Carnan asked her. No, Carnan Day, she said. You have delayed my death by several hours, and I have served you. Delay it further, and I will serve you further. He placed his hand lightly on her bare head. Will you accept death from me? Carnan Day asked. She was silent a moment. Her spirit silently railed against quiet death, as it had that morning, screamed against dying a drudge. But better a drudge treated honestly, whose tale would curdle her husband's spirit when he heard it, than a wife cast aside with lies. I would prefer that you delay it longer, she said at last. But it is a better death than I faced this morning.
She looked up at him then, meeting his eyes like the Aristo she was. Please remember that, Air Isriest, Carnanday said, taking his hand off her head and holding it out to her. Because I always keep my word, and I have promised that you will die, but you will not die today. She took his hand. The strength and warmth of his grip surprised her. He helped her rise to her feet. Take off those greys, he said. You have convinced me of your resolve. There are others here who can scrub stairs. He bent and kissed her hand. He was gone again before she could react. It was the first time anyone had kissed her, almost the first time anyone had touched her since the acid. A moon later, Est stood in her lab, its metal surfaces covered in gas jets, spurting blue and yellow fire and bowls brimming with acid. In flame and glass-bound acid, she saw the future. She saw Medea Station, the private rail station of her cousin, Cal Van Otek. Long strips of clear glass, rounded in the corners and soldered between iron and steel supports, filled the ceiling in symmetrical and streamlined patterns. Through them, beams of light shone down from the white sky to paint patterns on the floor. Aerodynamic train cars pinioned between cables whooshed in and out with a minimum of noise, but a great deal of air. Drudges carried crates on and off, their shoulder-length hair tied back against the blowing air. The platform, raised high on pillars amid the tower peaks of Otek's house, was cold and the wind biting. Fur-lined vests and muffs were everywhere among the people crowding on and off. Beneath the platform, Est saw a series of small storage rooms. In one, a portable iron stove warmed the air, and a number of people rested on furs, cloaks, and blankets that had been draped across some crates to keep them off the cold floor. Bentur Ibrin lounged on one, fiddling with the settings on some expensive gadget. Her husband, Loon, lay across another, his head in the beautiful Jane Linnell's lap. El's slender hands stroked his head. He looked relaxed. They were among friends. When footsteps sounded outside the door, no one tensed. Uben and Dern, their bodyguards, moved between the prince and the door, but nothing else changed. El's hand continued its rhythmic stroking of Loon's head. The lock to the door sprang, but the bar was still in place. Let me in, Otek's voice, brusque and rough. Uben lifted the bar, one hand on his laser, and pulled open the door. Otek stomped in. He looked unhappy. He addressed Loon. The most powerful scryer of our generation, and you left her behind for days people to find? Alive? His voice was quiet, but he trembled with the effort of holding his temper in check. Est is still alive? Ibrin said. She couldn't escape with us, Loon said. I left her another way out. Of all people, I thought Est would be strong enough to take it. Anger bubbled up, but Est forced it down, breathing deeply, not wanting to destroy her cousin Otek along with her husband. Loon felt what Loon felt. Loon thought what Loon thought. He would learn better eventually. Why hasn't Day killed her? Loon said. He said he would kill all of us, and he's Nininki. He said he would kill her, 
Otex said, but he didn't say when. Our enemy isn't stupid enough to throw away the generation's most powerful scryer. I wish I could say the same for my allies. Watch your tone, Otek, Ibrin said. Like Loon told you, we couldn't take her with us. I apologize, my prince, Otek said. But you should know that now Karnan Day has a scryer again. He was furious, but holding it back in front of the prince. Est is Aristo, Ibrin said. She would not have betrayed us unless he broke her mind, and a broken mind cannot scry. He is trying to trick us into thinking he has a scryer. She is a shell, no more. It's a tragedy, but not a threat. Ibrin spoke with a thoughtless assurance bred into him by years of people agreeing with everything he said. Est remembered his confidence well. It amused her to hear it now. We have another problem in that case, my prince, Otek said. Because the scryers I have in my household both say that Est is scrying for day. I have found a third, illicitly trained, who says the same thing. So, if Est cannot scry, neither can our own scryers. Otek was being diplomatic to avoid contradicting the prince. They all knew that if three separate scryers said Est was scrying for Karnan Day, then she was. But, but why would she? Loon said. She's an Aristo. It was her scrying that told us that Day intended to get rid of the Aristos, that unified the Aristos against him. Why would she undo all that if he hasn't broken her mind? I think you've forgotten that in addition to being an Aristo, Est is a woman, Otex said. And the scryers tell me that Day... The vision tore. The image of the men beneath Medea Station replaced by a vision of the rail station itself once more. It appeared empty, save for three scryers in the station, standing with their backs to the empty rails, all facing her. She recognized Zu Den Ein, the daughter of a dead Aristo named Vool, and Kosh Lavir, a consumptive Aristo by Blow, who Otek employed as a scryer. The third was a man who wore his hair half-shaved and half-long, the style of an Anubis. She saw why Otek had said he was illicitly trained. To train one of such a bloodline was forbidden. Otek had stretched to find three to oppose her, three to force her into seeing themselves rather than the visions she sought. "'We have seen your death, heir Isriest,' Ein said." You think you are prepared for death, but you will not be prepared for this one. This from the Anubis. When every living member of your family is dead, he will abandon you as your husband abandoned you. He will choose a path you cannot follow, Beer said. But he will not leave you the choice ere Ethlun left you. He will use you and kill you, Ein spoke again, taking her turn. He will kill you. He will kill you. Show me then, Est said. If it's true, then prove it. The vision of the rail station dissolved again, this time for good, leaving her staring into the naked blue flame of her burner. She knew why they did not show her own death. They lacked the power to make her scry it. But that didn't mean they were lying. It would be difficult to check without accidentally viewing the underlying truth. Her death she was cornered. 
She wrestled with the temptation to see her death, to see if she would be betrayed once more. But how could she be betrayed again? Carnanday had promised her nothing, absolutely nothing except death. And that was all Otex Scryers promised as well. What was she going to do? Live? All she wanted from Carnanday, he had already sworn to do. Defeat her husband's prince and kill her husband. And Carnanday could not break his promises without breaking himself. She sat and thought and then scryed out Carnan Nameless Day. She looked for him alone so there would be no risk of seeing herself die in the vision. He was sitting at his desk in her house, looking at a map of rail lines and roads and rivers and skyways. The maps were translucent, set to the same scale and layered one atop the other. Their edges were lit, and together they illuminated all the means at his disposal to move armies. He looked up, and, impossible as it was for one who himself was not scrying, met her gaze. Est, he said after a moment, I always know when I am watched. I am two floors above you and five minutes ahead. Come and see me. Est gasped, and the vision broke. She sat and waited five minutes before she got up to go see him. She did not want to arrive early and tell him that she would be watching. That would create a dull explanation for his prescience. If he really could tell, every time, who was watching and where they were watching and when they were watching, it would be wondrous. Wondrous the way little had been, ever since her infant scryer power spelled a vision of bubbling skin and a barren womb. It took her another minute to reach his office. He was waiting for her. He had set aside the maps and poured two glasses of flavorless distilled liquor. Hers sat, clear and harmless-looking as water, on the edge of his desk. Est, he said, why are you scrying me and not my enemies? She felt a frisson of fear. It gave her a certain grim pleasure to ignore it. She was well-practiced at conquering fear. Lately, whenever I scry out your enemies, I see only my family members, no one else, she said. The remaining scryers all unify against me, luring me to forbidden visions. It may be that I cannot serve you any longer and must die. She would be damned as well as dead if a scryer, especially a mere Anubis, could scry her a death for which she was not prepared. She wanted to live to be a widow. She wanted to live to see Loon regret abandoning her. But even if she did not see it, she was sure it would happen. That was enough. Otek, your cousin, is the one who has unified the scryers against you, isn't he? Day asked. I know that he is hiding your husband and the prince now. She said nothing. Perhaps Day would become angry and torture her, Perhaps that was the death for which she was not prepared. She let her fingers rest on her shot glass of liquor, but she did not let herself drink it yet. You still won't tell me what you scry about Otek, even though he is working against you, Day said. You helping me will ultimately lead to his death anyway, you realize. I will serve you in any way except against my family, she said. If I am useless to you now, I will accept my sentence. Carnanday smiled 
and lifted his glass. Drink your drink, he said, drinking his own. She tossed hers back. It tasted like water in her mouth, but burned like fire going down. It had been a long time since she had drunk liquor. It crossed her mind there would be a certain poetry to killing her with the very poison her husband had left behind. But, ruthless as he was, Carnan Day was not sadistic. There was no suspicious aftertaste, no pain driving her to her knees. The reason why you only see your family, Day said, pouring them a second round, is because you have helped me kill all my other enemies, those on this world anyway. There aren't any left, except the ones who are hiding with your excessively numerous relations. He drank his second shot. The fact that your relatives linger in your visions suggests that you keep your word not to harm them, he said, putting the glass down. Your refusal to betray them is why they will no doubt continue to pester me for some time. He poured himself a third shot. She eyed her second one dubiously, knowing it was powerful stuff. He was an Ininki. He could taste the liquor, could probably taste nuances humans missed, but it would not make him drunk. For sheltering Prince Ibrin, Calvin Otek is a dead man, Day continued. If you keep scrying after Loon, you'll see Otek dead. You need not. Otek's death will happen with or without you. Est took her second shot. A memory gripped her, a youthful vision she had dismissed as incompetence or a dream, of herself drinking in a room with an alien idol, golden and black. She had not known then what Nininki were. Otek's daughter, Kale Liri Lyle, is going to marry Ibrin, Day said. My former scryer saw it. She will swear to be Ibrin's until death parts them. Her name will change to Bene Liri Lyle. Est took a third shot, he poured, and she felt it hit warmer than the others. She was drunk. She could not scry drunk. The servants had never carried liquor to her side at the table, not since she was nineteen. My former scryer, Day said, died of an aneurysm, bleeding in her brain. My followers assured me that you scried it. The question is, did you murder her or merely witness her death? I wanted to see her die, Est said. Such a strange experience being drunk. It made her more aware of his beauty, painfully aware. He had no body, wept no tears, bled no blood, spilled no seed. But that hardly mattered when she could see a body, hear a voice, want a man, even if he wasn't really a man. I wanted to make her see herself die. I knew scrying for it might make it happen. I'm not innocent. Your morality is not exactly my concern, he said, not being a moral creature myself. Some said Nininki were demons, forced to honesty by the gods. Tell me, he said, pouring her a fourth shot. Do you believe a scryer has power over what occurs? Is the future the future, whether you look or not? Does scrying merely reveal things, or does it make them happen? My teacher told me that it changed things, Est said. But he wanted scryers seen as powerful. 
Without the ability to change things, we're impotent. Omens and harbingers, fearful only in terms of what we represent, not in ourselves. What do you think? She shrugged, her fingers wrapped around the glass. She was a little frightened of what she might reveal if that fourth shot began to course through her blood. It's a philosophical question, she said. Like most philosophical questions, it is what it is whether I agree or disagree. But I err on the side of believing that I can change things. I proceed cautiously. And how does one proceed cautiously when viewing the future? I don't scry when I am frightened, for fear of seeing my fears come to pass. I don't scry when I am angry, lest my anger bring blood and ruin on the future. I don't scry when my mind is muddled. The reasons are obvious. She took the fourth shot. It spread through her like warmth. Most of all, I don't scry when I am in the midst of a run of misfortune, because the taint of my misfortune will spread to everything I touch. Yet your scrying redoubled after you were scarred, he said. He stood up and his golden fingers brushed her face. She held herself still by an effort of will, but she wanted to flinch. It hurt her to have something so beautiful as his fingers touch something so ugly as her scars. It was a relief, she said. A moment later, she was surprised to have been so honest with him. I knew it was coming. I've always been afraid that I made it happen, though it might have happened anyway. Fate could be fate, and scrying just a lens that catches its forward reflections. But every night my husband and I spent together, I worried would be the last night. I felt responsible for destroying our happiness. When at last I was burned, I was ready for it. I'd already mourned my beauty. I mourned it before it was gone. Isri, he said, using her middle name, the intimate one, running his fingers down her face again. It isn't gone. Her breath caught, and she had to put her hand on the table to steady herself. If you must step away from the acid and the flames for a while, so be it, he said. He poured her a fifth shot. Drink liquor. Let your mind wander. Fall asleep without worrying your dreams will turn real. Possibly you only see what will be regardless. It's useful for spying, for anticipating enemy action, but it isn't vital for my plans. If you can influence the future you see, well, I can wait until this war is over to have a full range of scrying powers at my disposal. She did not drink the fifth shot. Instead, she wrapped her hand around the glass and met his eyes, those black voids in his angelic face. I thought you weren't going to send me back to scrubbing stairs, she said. Is this just some last night with liquor and talking? He smiled again, his white teeth dazzling. I am not known for such mercies he said. 
He came close, his scent as golden and strange as his face. He was a freak of beauty, deadlier than scrying and more seductive. There are things you can do for me, besides scrying, he whispered, and his breath, false breath for what Nininki needed to breathe, brushed warm against her skin. There was no hint of liquor on it. It had all burned away in the void where his soul should be. Her mind veered away in disbelief as he kissed her. His gold lips seared her like fire, shooting to her core. He pulled back and looked at her. His eyes were all black, the whites vanished. His smile was devilish. You doubt me, Isri, but I never lie. And you are beautiful. He took her face in both hands. She felt his touch burn through scars and skin and pulled her in for another kiss, deeper, hotter. When he released her, she touched her scars herself. Then she touched his flawless face and pulled him close for a kiss of her own. Now, he said, breaking the kiss to let her breathe, take off your robes. She woke in the night, hearing Ein say, He will use you and kill you. The bed was warm, not her bed, Loon's bed, the nicest bed in the house. Karnan Day lay stretched out beside her, awake. Nininki did not sleep. He rolled toward her in the dark. She could feel his eyes on her. He was waiting for her to speak. They... The other scryers have been trying to trick me into scrying out my own death, she said. The heat of him was reassuring and disconcerting, both at once. He wrapped himself around her, spooning her body in his own, and leaned in close. In a voice so quiet she could barely hear it, even with his lips against her ear, he whispered, They're watching us now. For an instant... Only an instant she stiffened. Then, as his hands moved over her body, she realized what he wanted, what he wanted his enemies to see. She wanted them to see it, too. She wanted Loon to see it. And, with a stab of triumph, she realized that Otek had been on the verge of telling him when Otek's scryers had ripped the vision away. Let this be what terrified them. She would enjoy it, in more senses than one. Karnan Day was an amazing lover. He was far better than ever her husband had been, and Loon's skill had been famous among the concubines and courtesans. But then, Loon was thirty-five. Day, as an Ininki, could easily be ten times as old. Older. He'd had ten times as many women, and not just aristo-courtesans, to teach him their secrets. And he wanted Est. He turned the lights up, made them blaze. Over the course of their lovemaking, he ripped the bedsheets off the bed and knocked the maps off Loon's old desk. He put her on glorious display, every side of her, every part, and never had she felt so beautiful. She screamed and gasped her way through seven or eight orgasms before they collapsed, her panting for breath on the bed. She shivered a bit from the sweat cooling on her body and post-orgasmic weakness. 
Laughing, he wrapped her in one of his own robes. They've stopped watching, he said, an enormous grin humanizing his face. The young male watched the longest, unsurprisingly. The Anubis, Est said, making an expression of distaste. I don't know his name. Then she gave in and laughed, too. It must take them a while to get the courage to tell, she said, because they were in the past when they saw that, and, well, as of the last time I scried, someone was only just getting around to telling the prince and my husband, and that was still to come. Don't know how far in the future it was. We can't judge time gaps precisely. They were about a day and a half behind us, Day said, but I don't know how long until your vision will come true. I know nothing of the future. She felt some of her joy slip away, her enemy's warnings sneaking in. You know how I will die, she said, because it is up to you. He ran his hand along her skin, scarred and smooth. I don't know how you will die. Not yet, he said, his voice quiet. You could change your mind. You could betray me. You don't want to, but you still love Loon. She opened her mouth to deny it. Then wisely, she silenced herself. Nininki did not tolerate lies. Est risks crying again. She knew her former teacher would say she should not. Not with the three hunting for her. Not when she was in the grips of a run of fortune she could not understand. Karnan Nameless Day or Nininki Karnan Day, as she privately thought of him, calling him Karnan in the depths of the night, made love to her once or twice a day. The servants and drudges treated her not with fear and well-hidden reluctance, as they once had, but with genuine deference. She was reclusive no longer. She did not lurk within her lab. She did not hide her face behind hoods. Day adorned her with rare gems, draped them over her face and body until she forgot that face or body had ever looked different than they did today. Scars meant nothing to him. He told her that he wanted her, and he never lied. He did not love her and did not pretend to. It made her feel safe. She had nothing to lose, no seemingly substantial feeling that would dissolve to nothing tomorrow. She did not have to scry. Not a mere concubine, she had a voice among Day's advisors, a use for her unmystical Aristo education. Day was satisfied. But her sorcerous skills would atrophy if she stopped using them. And feeling his mouth move up and down both sides of her body indiscriminately, the only significant fear her life had held, the fear of the coming acid, seemed irrational to her. Watching Day and herself having sex in the mirror of Loon's old wardrobe room, she swore off all forms of fear. She decided to scry again. Risk meant nothing when she was dead anyway. The three had watched her for such a moment. They had prepared well. Instead of the vision she sought, a vision of the next time Ibrin felt himself to be alone, another vision enveloped her. There was her mother's dressing room, the chairs burned by lasers, a miasma of perfume and blood thick in the air. There was a faceless body, her father's by its rings, 
clutching a gun in its slack hand. Next was her brother and his bride, older than when she had seen them last, kneeling in chains. Next was Otek, his bearded face defiant. He knelt chained before day, both of them on a podium before a mob. Est could not make out the screams and cries of the masses, but she knew they wanted blood. It was an old practice, meeting out public and bloody deaths for non-Aristo offenders. In darker ages, the Aristos had personally slit the throats of drudges who had killed Aristos, demanding life for life. They had allowed the blood to fly out over the witnesses. Once more enlightened heirs arose, they eliminated the practice in favor of more hygienic killings. Public throat slitting was exactly the kind of practice that would strike her godlike lover as fitting to resurrect, this time for execution of Aristos. Est did not want to see this. She liked Otek. She knew he liked her. Even learning she had betrayed the Aristos, he had blamed Loon. He wanted her dead, yes, but that was because he respected her abilities. He warranted better than to be killed for the gratification of a mass of drudges. She struggled to break away from the vision, and could not. The three would make her watch this. They would force her to push the vision one way or the other. If she helped Otek, she would betray Karnan Day. If she did not, she would betray her family the only people who had ever loved her, the only people, besides Loon, whom she had ever loved. When every living member of your family is dead, Veer whispered, and Day's men forced Otek's head back. At least, she noticed, his scalp was shaved. They had not made him grow his hair out in prison. But if they had, she realized, the mob would not know to mark him as Aristo. The knife came up. Your scryers are watching, Karnan Day said to Otek with a bloody, bright smile. Did they warn you? She felt the three scryers flinch, shocked. The knife came down, the sun glinting off the blade in a flash of light. Hot blood splashed out over the crowd. In that instant, while the other three reeled, horrified to find that in watching Karnan Day, he was watching them back. Est took control of the vision. She targeted Veer, the consumptive, who she could sense was the brainchild behind the plan to show her loved one's destruction. Scrying showed more than the eyes saw. Veer's lungs were hidden from light, but Est could see them even in darkness. The tuberculosis had eaten pockets into his lung tissue, soupy tumors that his body had walled off. His breath hissed in and out of the fraction of his lungs that was still viable. It began to hiss in and out faster, as future Veer began to hyperventilate. Est felt a sick and fascinated excitement as the vision gave her an understanding of anatomy such as only medics and Anubises had. Part of scrying, an addictive part, was knowing the meaning behind things she watched. There, right beside the toxic tubercular pocket in his left-hand lung, was a huge pulmonary artery, pulsing with blood straight from the heart. As future Veer panicked, the pressure in the pulmonary artery grew, and there, quite suddenly, the pocket broke through the artery wall. 
Blood flooded everything, forcing its way through the thin barrier that separated sick and healthy tissue, filling Veer's lungs with fluid. Each beat of his heart sent more blood spurting into his alveoli, drowning him. He gasped and choked and spluttered until at last his heart stopped pumping blood into his lungs because his heart stopped pumping altogether. Veer, whom she had forced to watch with her, now began to hyperventilate. The vision broke. Est rose from her laboratory seat. Stiffened muscles screamed and joints popped as she shook herself loose of the clinging remnants of the vision. She emptied the beaker of acid carefully into the proper receptacle. She needed to tell Day one of the enemy scryers was dead. A consumptive is an easy kill, she said. The Anubis will be the hardest because he is numb to the fear of death. Focus your efforts on Ein, Karnan Day said. Hold off on the Anubis. She did as he said and did not ask why, but she wondered. She wondered until the day she saw a vision of Ein in the flickering light of a flame shining through a beaker of acid. She saw Ein's face flush purple and her eyes bulge as the Anubis pulled a garrote tight. No longer was Est Carnanday's only scryer. He had recruited the Anubis, or would soon. She went to find Day in his command center. He stood by a map he'd had built, a three-dimensional glass cube with subways and airways and tunnels, hills and lakes and domes all present. He could slide colored lights through the glass to symbolize the movements of soldiers, trains, carriers, and tanks. She knew he could sense her distress. He did not need to be a Nininki to do it. Tension radiated from her spine to her fingers, curled into fists. His eyes stayed on his map, however. An Anubis should not be scrying, she said. I'm destroying your caste system. His voice was cool. Hadn't you noticed? She forced her hands open, forced them into a more relaxed shape. Her voice did not, could not, follow suit. Do you want the future to be steeped in death, because that is how an Anubis will scry it? He looked at her, and his black eyes were flat and unamused. Your prejudices strain my patience, he said. He turned back to his map. He made a minute adjustment in the position of a light. You may go. She left left before she could fling out foolish accusations, left before she could smash his map on the floor and scream like an air sailor. A courier brought Est the news that Day's troops had captured Loon. Est was in her lab. The overhead lights were dark. All around her bowls of fire burned. She had turned off the gas jets and surrounded herself with containers of different fuels, each one burning in its own particular color, most in shades of yellow and gold and red, but one violet and one under a venting hood, a noxious green. Facing the courier, Est took one last glimpse through the glass bubble of acid she held in her hand, then she placed it with careful precision into its stand. She had not been able to find Ibrin in her visions. Having seen Ein's death, Est could not scry her a sooner one, 
and meanwhile Ein had discovered and revealed Est's self-imposed limitation concerning her family members. Ibrin now stayed close to Est's family on purpose. His marriage to Lyle, her cousin once removed, had been performed. They sheltered with still more of Est's family. Est hoped not her brother. She had not scried his destruction, and she held on to hope that he would live. Veer's words, that she would not die until all the living members of her family were dead, haunted her. The courier said that Day was with the prisoner. Est kept her face immobile, a task the scars made easier, and asked the courier one question. Day did not have Ibrin, the courier told her, only Loon. She wondered if Veer had included Loon as a member of her family when he said they would all die before she did. She had not included Loon in her, pro her prohibition today. Why was it she could see Otek and her parents dead, but not her husband? Karnan Day's mandatory truthfulness bound him to kill Loon as it bound him to kill her. But Karnan Day could fit a great deal of leniency into a death sentence, as she had every reason to know. If Est betrayed him, he would give her a terrible death. But he might give her a terrible death even if she stayed loyal. Loon would never betray Ibrin. But if he would, just if, what deal might Karnan Day be willing to strike with him? She had made Loon a cuckold before the eyes of the world, a laughingstock to the very allies for whom he had sacrificed so much. Karnan Day could offer him revenge. Est dismissed the courier. Then she took out the keys to her house, copies of them at any rate, and rose from her chair. She put out the fires and turned on the lights. She retrieved two specific vials. One was acid, the same kind of acid that had burned her. That acid worked best for her scrying. The other was Loon's parting gift. She put the vials into the pockets of her red dress. The dress was new, cut wide at the neckline to show her collarbone. She locked her lab behind her and strode down into the metal bowels of her house. The clitum wing in the lowest basements held the secure rooms, rooms where treasures and prisoners were kept. She strode the dark halls without fear, heeding neither cries nor echoes. She knew where Loon would be, the deepest cell. In front of the door, she encountered one of Day's soldiers. He stood immobile, his armor twinkling with lights, his body bristling with weapons, his faceplate a shatterproof screen. He barred her path. She demanded passage. The soldier spoke into the calm in his helmet, listened to the earpiece reply, and stepped to the side. Her keys opened the door. She entered without hesitation, letting the door shut behind her. Day's golden presence dominated the space. In the odd reversal common to him, his unshorn hair and simple black clothes marked him as a prisoner, but he alone was free. There on a bench before Day sat Loon. Stubble showed on his head, and lines cut deep around his eyes. He needed a shower, but his clothes were rich and fine. He was unshackled. In chains beside him sat her brother. The sight of him cut Est somewhere deep where it did not show. For a moment the three of them stared at her, saying nothing, 
she was an interloper in their tete-a-tete. I thought he'd fixed your face, Loon said. He was not taunting her. His voice held mild surprise. In the pockets of her gown, Est had the vial of acid. Her fingers flexed with the impulse to throw it on Loon. And then Day was there beside her. His black will was a palpable thing. What is it you have in your pocket? he asked. Her fingers closed on a vial. By its etchings, she knew it to be the poison, not the acid. It would do no good flung in Loon's face. She took out the poison. I thought to return his parting gift to me, she said. Too soon, perhaps? Day smiled, amused. He took the vial from her hands. Too soon, he said. She hoped suddenly, hope like a sharp pain, that she would not need that poison herself. Why was her brother chained, but Loon free? Loon stood and walked to stand beside Day. He smiled at her. His schooled expression of contempt was undercut by a glint of vicious triumph. He's offered me the same deal that you have, Est, Loon said. Loon had always looked so handsome to her. Beside Day's gilded perfection, however, his gloating face was a welter of physical flaws, twisted and ugly. But Day's face was an illusion, a corporeal mask over a being that was not limited by corporeality. Not a moral creature, Day said, not known for his mercies. And Day never lied. She looked to Day. I have made the offer, Day said. He can give me Ibrin. S's hand closed around the vial remaining to her. The acid. Something dangerous appeared in Day's lightless eyes. Something hard. He could move as fast as gale winds when he wanted to, and acid would not hurt him. It looks like your lover is even less attached to you than I was, Loon said. S's keys opened the cell door, letting her escape. She fled back to the hidden closet where she knew she would not die. Sitting inside it once again, she took out her keys and the vial of acid and held them in her hands. The little vial, so like the vial Loon left her, glittered mocking in the light. She was twice a fool. Her imagination ran wild, promising visions of Day and Loon laughing together, mocking her as she died at their feet. She envisioned her family dying and Loon living for years in happiness and luxury before his execution. Morbid fear whispered of herself broken on a wheel before a mob. With such dread, with tears pricking her eyes and devastation in her heart, it would be madness to scry. She could not scry Day and Loon in that room, not with her brother there, not feeling like she did. Day would know. Worse, it would doom her brother to the very fate she feared. That was why Day kept her brother with Loon, she realized. He knew that Est would not scry against her family, not deliberately. Every vision she saw of them was either forced on her by Otek's scryers, or one where she scried others and her family entered during the vision. Day knew that she served him, not from fear of death, but rather from a desire to be avenged on Loon. He could not count on her support once she'd scried out her victory, or alternately Loon's victory over her. 
all Day had to do to keep her from scrying Loon was to house Loon with her captured family members. Day knew that was the way to hide from her what was coming, to keep her guessing, to keep her working for him. Day had told her that she no longer needed to scry. What was it he had not wanted her to see? If she scried, she would bring on her own doom. But she sought it out. She did the forbidden. She scried her own death. She saw herself lying on a circular bed in a tower room. It looked high in the air. Nothing but bright blue sky showed through the windows that surrounded the room, and strange jewel-green birds flew by. She looked no older than she was now. If anything, she looked younger. The faint lines on her forehead and at the corner of her unscarred eye smoothed away. She wore rubies at her throat, but she was naked otherwise. The bedclothes were rumpled. Carnan Day stood at one window, looking out. He was naked, too. I know I've scried this room before, she heard herself say. It's familiar, the way scried things are. Do you remember what you saw? he asked, leaving the window and lying beside her. Her future self regarded him for a moment and smiled a lazy smile. No, she said. It can't have been important. I usually remember visions. It must have been lifetimes ago. He kissed her then. She nestled in his arms. Time passed. The blue sky outside deepened in hue, and wisps of cloud showed gold in the west. Her eyes slipped closed. Good night, she murmured. Good night, he whispered in return. Her heavy, sleeping breaths slowed, and then stopped. He looked up, and his eyes met her scrying ones. I have to leave, Isri, he said. I know you want to face your death, to know it's coming. But you have lived more than five hundred years. Years of life untouched by age or illness make death harder. I do not want you to suffer, Isri. He was still holding her. He looked away from her scrying self to the body in his arms. I would take you with me if I could, he said. But humans cannot pass that way, and I cannot break my promise. He caressed her face, and the vision dissolved. She had finished dying. The same hour that Ibrin fell into Day's hands, Day told Loon that there was no further need for his service. Loon's execution took place in a small metal room. There was a drain in the middle of the floor crude plumbing to accommodate the crude plumbing of a human body. Est watched impassively. Her attendants felt strangely dutiful. No one gave any speeches. Not Day, not her, not even Loon. He spared her a dull glare, but most of his attention went to Karnan nameless Day. Day was the one person who did not seem to belong in that room. Everyone else shared the crude plumbing of the condemned, from the soldiers in their electric armor to Est in her everyday finery. Est's imprisoned brother, there to deter her past self-scrying eyes, wore drudges gray and did not meet her gaze. Her brother had never personally sheltered Ibrin. Day had spared him and his family as a gift to her. 
Loon's blood ran down the drain, spilled by a bloodless Nininki, and the rest of them went back to their lives. Far from glorying, Est surprised herself by feeling sad. Est went on to scry hundreds of thousands of visions over her life, until the early ones faded into the dim shadows of old dreams. Of all the things she ever scried, seeing her lover kill her was the most comforting. And welcome back. Never, ever scry your own death. You know what that will lead to. If you see your own death, you'll go mad. Except, if you see it, then you know. You know how it all ends. You know where you'll be. And you know you have nothing else to worry about until that time comes. You can be fearless up until that moment. And then hopefully, at that moment as well, brave in every task that comes before you. You can be free and daring and do anything because you know your time has not yet come. So, never scry your own death? Well, you can't, of course, but can we be that free and daring despite us not being able to see the future? That just might be a whole different level of bravery. And I hope we can level up to it. Feedback this week is for Nathaniel Lee's Dragon Slayer, read by Ellie Hirschman. This was the story of a deadly former dragon who became a knight, and the squire who accompanied him on the heroic journey. Reaction to it was pretty positive. Hillary Moon Murphy said, I love this one. It had a great narration, so many distinct voices, all wonderful. Hirschman did a marvelous job. Also, the writing was delightful. There were so many fun details about Sir Timor knocking over buildings and damaging farm fields as he traveled. At one point, I was clear how the plot was going to go, thinking that it was going to be predictable. Then, it veered off in a direction that I did not expect at all, but from hindsight, seemed perfect. An Albion Moonlight said, I really liked how it took the conventions of fantasy and used them to make a point about our own lives and paths. Dragons and stories are supposed to be and act a certain way. Knights are supposed to be and act a certain way. And this story, of course, turned that on its head. But I also got the sense that the story wants us to ask ourselves, who am I? What am I doing? And most importantly, why do I do it? A good story makes you think. This story makes me think at a pretty fundamental level. Wow. You know, I generally read the comments when they come in and are posted, and then I reread them as I trawl for these feedback segments. And it's a double delight in cases like this, when I get to see how much you all enjoyed it all over again. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting us at podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going. Many, many thanks for your support. Well, that was our show this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Ann Leckie, LaShawn Wanick, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with our closing story of the year, Daniel Abraham's The High King Dreaming. Until then, take comfort in your loved ones. We'll see you next time. 
PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from John Steinbeck, who said, To be alive at all is to have scars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.